to Bart Banter, the podcast for a children's musician by a children's musician. This time, we're going to be chatting with folks who are not in the uh, the domestic side, not in the cotton in the United States. I was wondering what it was like to be a children's performer in places like, oh, I don't know, England. And so, sure enough, I happened to bump into this performer out of England. I'm not actually sure where in England, so I hope to find out about that soon. It is Dr. Liam Malloy, also known as Johnny Raindrop. Hey, Ian, <laughs> Liam, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Nice to be here. Okay, so uh, I'm going to try really hard not to accidentally fall into an English accent as I talk to you, but you have to promise not to fall into an American accent either, so we have to kind of retain oh, our... Oh, sure, own. that's... Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll try real hard. As Johnny Raindrop, you head up a band that's released, I think, seven albums now? Yeah, sev- you know, seven albums of original um, music for, for children and families. We've done um, ex- compilation albums of our educational songs or our sort of didactically educational songs um we've done a dvd uh of live songs and we've now on to our second greatest hits album so um in the past where we used to manufacture cds and sell them at gigs and you know this is a well-worn story now but as um each of those cds is sold out their their manufacturing run we haven't replaced them but we've replaced them with greatest hits compilations. Some people still want to buy some something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a new album uh, that we're gearing up to record in the new year, and we'll we'll press some some hard copies of those. But uh, yeah, and uh, I'm just trying to think. We've done a Christmas album, and mm-hmm. we've done a whole album in collaboration with children from my local area. Um, so that was a collaborative in terms of songwriting and performance and recording so uh, yeah what i'm curious about and you've started to already kind of touch on it are the similarities and differences between the two markets basically because children i think are the same pretty much everywhere you go as far as what they respond to when it comes to dance and music and interactivity but yeah. the but the business and the market and maybe social acceptance and opportunities i'm wondering if there's a difference between uh, what we do over here and what you do over there and how that how that works. You mentioned the demise of the physical CD, which we're lamenting mm. over here considerably. Mm. But um, and the, and the fact that the cars are pretty much the last place that you can you know expect somebody to 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 buy a CD. Yeah. How's it going with streaming though? Is it? Yeah. Do you find that that's a viable opportunity or YouTube the the videos? Mm. Or how are you getting the music out these days? Well, yeah, you're right. It's all through through streaming. I'm looking at my my statements. Um, my main streaming revenue comes from Apple Music, closely followed by Spotify, and with some others down the list. Um, yes, I have about uh, seventy or eighty videos on YouTube, and really, there's only a handful of those that have got more than ten thousand views. Um, and I guess the idea of viable is 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 a difficult word because it's just a complete change in the business model from those of us that have lived through the time where we could sell not only CDs but records and cassettes and other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a complete shift that my main revenue is, you know, by far through performance. So uh, my music, my recorded music uh, on streaming and, and YouTube is really just promotional tools to drive people towards 
performance uh, to board gig tickets um, and for booking me to do to do parties and schools and and other things really um, yeah I mean you know it, I guess it's this um, this kind of revenue that ticks along in the background but uh, for me at present because I don't have um, songs or videos that have sort of hundreds and thousands or even millions of uh, views or streams uh, it just provides a, a small bit of revenue that I can then you know plow back straight into the business by doing some more recording or mm-hmm. um, shooting a video or something like that so uh, yeah I, I just I mean I could I just comment on what I perceive as the differences between say American slash Canadian and uh, the British market and I, I, I'm basing my my comments really on um, some research that I've done. I've, I've just finished researching a book which is going to publication. It's an academic book. And the last chapter specifically involved me doing lots of interviews with children's performers, songwriters, uh, most of which, but not all, were from uh, America. Mm-hmm. And it, were pe- it involved also people that run children's radio stations. Yeah, there's huge commonalities. I think we're all take, talking the same language. Um, some of the artists I spoke to, interestingly, were were young enough or new enough to the children's music business um, to not have um, suffered a loss, if you understand. They've come straight into digital, that, and um, so CDs weren't even an option for them. Right. Um, yeah. I think it's just the you know it's just the same uh, comments. People are lamenting the 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 loss of of. Um, of, of CDs, revenue from CDs, but then people being very positive generally about the fact that their music is available to all across the world for free generally. You know, obviously there is some revenue, but, uh, you know, accessible to all. And I, I'll maybe give you some examples of that. But I, And again, I think children's music performance and writing and uh, creation of music is is ideologically driven rather than financially driven. People generally commented that the the money was a, a nice byproduct as long as they could kind of make a living. If you understand, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there were definitely people that were much much more business savvy uh, than others, and than myself certainly. Um, so I'll give you an example of. Uh, well, a comment I received more than once was that yeah you know it's great we just put our, put your music out there and if it gets picked up or then that's a bonus you know if people are excited about it then that's a bonus. Um, I spoke to Barry Lewis Polisar who mm-hmm. uh, I guess way more familiar to people in the states than he is over here and obviously been making music for children and for families since 1975 which is his first album. Right. And, um, you know, he was happy to put all his music out there on Spotify. And it was through social media, as I understand, that his song, um, All I Want Is You, got picked up for the film Juno uh, 40 years after it was originally released. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said it was a song that he never played live or during all that time. He was never asked to play it live. And it was just there through social media and the people that from the film um, actually came across the track by mistake. They were looking for something else. But then since it was put on the soundtrack of Juno, it was across the opening credits, 
Uh, it, it, I think it did. I think the soundtrack alone did at least half a million very, very quickly, and it's completely, you know, resurrected his kind of career, which al- always existed, but uh, it kind of took him in a completely new dimension. So, uh, um, you know, that's that's one way that uh, you know streaming has benefits if they're not immediately financial, I guess. Um, Certainly for for me, YouTube is a long-term campaign and I can see that some of the videos that I've had on for, you know, more than 10 years now, they do kind of pick up steam sometimes. Um, Sometimes the songs that have got really strong themes around um, things like Halloween or Mother's Day or uh, my biggest one is about endangered animals. Mm-hmm. But I can see it just, you know, they could just kind of tick along and they kind of grow and, uh, um, you know, people do pick up on them around the world. Uh, you know, just through through streaming and social media, I've had uh, approaches from American TV companies wanting to put songs on their news reports and same from uh, British BBC wanting to use them on on uh, TV programs, and and again I get requests from schools all around the world wanting to use very specific songs uh, that they found usually on YouTube actually. So that's a that's a similarity. There is that that opportunity now because of that of streaming, like you said, to break through and maybe do some licensing for film or uh, you know like soundtracks or commercials or things like that and that seems to be one of the last or maybe not the last but the new emerging market for music for children's music once it's mm. recorded is the really is well maybe you'll be picked up by a Pixar film or you'll be picked yeah. up you know uh, for for a children's the crossover taking children's music into a movie like Juno which was totally cool but that was a kind of a quirky film in general yeah and it's sure. not and not expected to i think no. a lot of uh, children's musicians would be like well i don't think that they're going to take my <laughs> you know my song and put it on you know something that's rated r but yeah but it happened so maybe yeah, there is yeah. a, a future for that pursuing that but i see the same thing over here and obviously you're 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 an academic in this you're yeah. uh you have a phd in is it in yeah. children's music actually yeah it's well specifically it's in recorded music for children but that, obviously that incorporates um children's uh, broadcasting, radio broadcasting, and children's TV broadcasting, and I'm interested in films and uh, digital media as well. But I'm interested in the recorded product rather than um, most of what has been um, picked up by scholars over the years, mostly by ethnomusicologists, I guess, which is what children do with music, how they uh, create music, how they, how they, um, you know, work, how, how children sing in playgrounds for example and how they you know i guess and i guess the educational side of music is very big uh in in scholarly circles but i'm more you know i'm more interested in 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 records uh recording so um, i mean just very quickly run through what i what i you know please yeah coming out which yeah please uh, do uh, my PhD was eight years of study, part-time, and I was always working as a music teacher, teaching generally higher education, which is uh, university-level students, uh, popular music, really context and performance. But alongside that, I did a I did this PhD, and um, first chapter, uh, apart from an opening chapter, which is kind of laying the concepts and the theories 
down. Um, my first chapter is based on American folk music and specifically hooked around the children's songs written by Woody Guthrie, um, for which I came, uh, had to do a lot more primary research. I came to America, I came to uh, Oklahoma, Tulsa last summer and spent three weeks in the Woody Guthrie archives going through his notebooks, letters, um, you know, his own record collection and anything that he'd kind of written on and written all these songs and his diaries. And I, I came out with about 420 children's songs that he'd written, um, many of which have not been documented before. Um, he only recorded, and again, it's it's only estimated somewhere between 40 and 45 songs, not all of which were, have been released, not all of uh, not all of which are still in print. Um, but, uh, you know, I was really interested in, in Woody's writing for children because a lot of what he wrote or what he's credited with writing were actually the utterances of his his own children you know that aspect of it is quite well documented but maybe not to the extent that it becomes obvious when when you've read his his diaries where he actually says you know that you've you've got documented dates when Kathy said this or Arlo said this or Nora said this and and it's just verbatim that Mm. he can write these things so um you know there's like lots of kind of ideological links between American folk music and and the concept of childhood so which I was really interested in uh so you know without trying to bore anybody but uh, my second chapter is about the BBC they run a really popular children's radio show between 1952 and about 1982 and it's uh it just, uh, I went through all the playlists, I did a lot of archival research. Um, most of the songs were not written for children. They were written for everybody, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, lot, a, lot of those, a lot of those songs were, what, the really popular songs were the, the pre-Beatles uh, productions of George Martin. So he recorded lots of songs with people like um, the Goons and... Uh, people like Tommy Cooper and Rolf Harris. I don't know how familiar anybody is with any of these artists, but uh, um, if you check out George Martin's pre-Beatles productions, they are, you know, really well produced. Like, and it was through because he did those records that the Beatles were attracted to George Martin as a producer. But uh, they're uh, full to, of novelty. Just, just ask a question. Yeah. So those were like those were children's bands. Those were children's. Prefer- no, not at all. No? They were mo- mostly uh, actors, TV personalities, and uh, kind of comedians. I like the Goons, Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers, who were in the Goons at the time, who uh-huh. obviously people like John Lennon really, really admired and and grew up with. Um, but the songs are full of comedy, humor. Some, George Martin wrote a lot of those songs as well as producing. And, you know, it's really interesting as well. But they're full of comedy, sometimes quite adult comedy, um, and full of novelty sound effects. Again, you know, it's this idea that when the Beatles started to experiment more in studio, George Martin had already been there because he'd done lots of, uh, you know, sound effects that were created in the studio with these with these kind of artists so there's some you know for me there's some ideological issues around presenting uh, music for everybody of or inverted commas families mm-hmm. of which children are kind of, kind of subset and, and once you've put it on a show that's called children's choice and it was later called junior choice then obviously um, it, you've got this idea of an intended market or an imagined audience of, of children mm-hmm. but again you're exposing them to songs that are about 
suicide and and death and and um you know different identity issues and issues of sexuality and um you know that are kind of coded and and humor through humor and kind of weird novelty sound effects so i'm kind of interested in in the the kind of ideological construction of children of ch- of children of childhood really through these kind of recorded music and if I just take you on to my third chapter, which is about the music of Sesame Street, which is all hooked around the, the self-created curriculum of the children's television workshop. So every every note, every every song, every piece of content had to was matched to a curriculum. Uh, some of which was didactic, especially in the early days, and as it went on, it became more uh, social and pro-social um, uh, curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but again, all of those songs were, were written for Sesame Street by the writers and the um, arrangers and the composers that were on board. And that's very different to my fourth chapter, which is about the music of The Muppet Show, which is about um, all the songs were already released. They were all commercial recordings that, that uh, were really compiled and, and then performed by the in-house band. But uh, very, very little of the Muppet Show music was was written for the Muppet Show. But again, uh, Sesame Street's much more obviously for children uh, through their targeting. Muppet Show uh, is is a family show. It's a British, you know, it's all filmed in Britain, and I'm particularly interested in the in the British aspects of it because uh, it's not. And again, this is really interesting. This, you know, we talked about the kind of digitization of, of music, but there's a lot of content, musical content from the Muppet Show, which just doesn't exist on either Spotify or YouTube, and just and it's never been released on DVD. Um, in Britain, the shows were five minutes longer than the American versions, or because of advert breaks, because of longer advert breaks, so they had to fill it with something, and they generally filled it with British music hall songs. Um, which they recorded quite quickly. And so you get Fozzie and Kermit dressed up as Pearly Kings <coughs> singing songs like Any Old Iron and um, Oh, ones that are much more... These are those ones that uh, the American audience probably wouldn't even get because they're not no, familiar they're just, with those traditional recordings or traditional songs. No, potentially potentially not. But some of them did make it into the into the full content of the show. Many of them were just add-ons which only British audiences could see. And again, because a lot of them date to the original days of music hall, the kind of 1860s, 70s, 1880s, they are, for everybody though, you know, music hall audiences weren't differentiated by age generally until later on mm. and so the content is quite bawdy in places and they get away with it with kind of nudges and winks and there's songs in there miss piggy sings one about uh prostitution it's called the bird on nelly's hat mm. um and even uh, any old iron is a kind of uh it's ho- coded with homosexual language and the idea of the song that is that the performer is standing on say, stage saying do we have any any gay men in here? Basically, <laughs> so uh, and all this is you know you know children have to you know I make arguments that uh, you know these things are very p- positive uh, and progressive in the same way that Woody Guthrie was wrote about progressive parenting and progressive politics um, because they they um, expose children to to fairly you know universal. 
inverted commas adult issues quite young in their life and through through uh, catchy music and and a kind of family setting in other words a socialized domestic setting um children can start to process those ideas talk to people about those ideas you know so the the, the idea that children are not then in some kind of shielded walled garden that's created to protect their innocence you know this construction of innocence is kind of central to to my thinking i guess about children's music uh, mm-hmm. all the albums my my research was on sesame street was about the albums of sesame street and they're really fascinating in themselves but they the, I was interested in the Sesame Street record label. Mm-hmm. They released about 85 albums in a very short period of time, in about 12 years, 13 years. They're all available on Spotify. I did my research. I bought some of them as best I could, and I had access to everything. By the time I'd finished my research, they'd all disappeared from Spotify. Oh, wow. Um, so there's some licensing issues that things can appear and disappear from from uh, digital media for various reasons, unknown reasons, really. I, I don't know what the time frame of that was. I know that Disney is about to do this big launch, and they're okay. They're yeah. rapidly buying up everything and pulling all their media back to uh, yeah. to to control it. So, and and addition. So what you're saying is, I have the um, original 45s of Sesame Street, the Alphabet. Yeah, over yeah. here, and uh, so those are yeah. That's my retirement now. <laughs> I'll eBay those yeah. someday, man. The uh, connection between uh, Jim Henson's work with the Muppets and what he and the way that he was able to provide family entertainment. Mm. When you describe that, and then you, I, I link that back to George Martin and what he was doing originally, and how that was branded mm. under that same sort mm. of banner to a certain extent. Yeah. Because I remember watching Peter Sellers on the Muppet Show. And mm-hmm. even as a kid, watching it when it was being when it was broadcast, and then later uh, buying the, the the DVDs so I could watch them again with my yeah. kids, that was mm. some really heavy stuff. I mean, some really dark. Yeah. Peter Peter yeah, Sellers yeah. was a very heavy mm. individual, and mm. in that context, you know, it was like, wow, this is yeah, this, you yeah. Know, is this when when is a child a uh, when is it appropriate to expose a child to this, even though it's darling and sweet and, you know, but there's, there's definitely yeah. the theme through the Muppet show was that yeah. strange, that strange crossover that I admire. And I kind of do it sometimes in my music where there's inside jokes and things like that. There's definitely comment content oh, that's yeah, a little bit yeah. above the pay grade of a four-year-old. They won't get it. I hope. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess my argument would be they they get it on their own level, and but um, yeah, I I think I mean this this you know there's a couple of things there that really Jim Henson, especially coming out of Sesame Street, he really wanted to get back to what he was before Sesame Street, which was an adult uh, kind of political satirist, I suppose, or you know somebody that could really engage adults with fairly heavy content, um, and so. Yeah, not only do you get things like Peter Sellers, but there's quite a lot, especially in season one and season two, quite a lot of like sexualized violence, I suppose that you'd call it. And this, you know, other people have written about this um, in academic terms. Uh, I'm just trying to think of the, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll think of the, the names of the authors, but um, there's some sketches with that use music um, with Rita Moreno. There's one, mm-hmm. a notorious one, where she's in a jazz club singing fever mm-hmm. and uh, animal is on the drums 
and you know he's trying to restrain himself and he just can't because of his lusty kind of attraction to Rita Moreno and she has to repeatedly tell him to kind of cool it which he just cannot do it and he explodes into a a kind of drum solo which signifies his kind of his his kind of horniness I suppose Uh, but and she she goes up behind him and slams two massive cymbals across his head, which and he slumps over the drum kit. But then they've got this kind of repeated trope through the early season of the Muppet Show, where he he says that's my kind of woman. And so in other musical sketches with um, people like Ruth Ruth Buzzy, mm-hmm. she she does a kind of uh, a kind of uh, a stand up fight with with Sweetums, where they absolutely knock seven seven bells out of each other and. Uh, you know, it becomes quite explicit. You get to see all her undergarments. And uh, again, uh, she ends up cracking a chair over his head, at which time he slumps on the floor and says, that's my kind of woman. And, and it, the Muppet Show pulled away from it in season three, four, and five. But um, yeah, there's all this, even when Dudley Moore's on the show as a kind of jazz pianist, Animal just absolutely loses his temper, says, I want to kill, kill, kill him. He does the same with Buddy Rich. He slams a bass drum, kick drum over Buddy Rich's head. I want to kill, kill, kill mm-hmm. Buddy Rich, you know, and uh, it's just kind of violence, kind of unexplicable, random, in, you know, uh, impetuous violence. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and they get away with so much because it's puppets and humor and, and, and kind of catchy music and uh, and then, you know, you flip the channel at the time over here and it was Charlie's Angels and The Love Boat and then all of this other, like, really not appropriate content on any level for family viewing to a certain extent. And yet there it was, you know, and I, it's embarrassing to look back, I think, yeah. for me, it's embarrassing to be like, oh, man, like, I remember being on Saturday night and watching, you know, Fantasy Island and The Love Boat and, and I can't even tolerate them now. Just the the content is so unacceptable. And yeah. it, was, it was all kind yeah. of mixed in. Like there was a there was a wide swath that was allowed um, yeah, at, the, at yeah, the time yeah. in that in that genre of, of family yeah, viewing. I guess so. Yeah, I mean it's difficult to call, isn't it? Because obviously history has has painted some of those things inappropriate because of issues of race and and gender, I suppose mainly. But I guess that that idea of acceptability is a slightly different. You know, I guess up to the parents to decide to some extent what's acceptable. Um, you know, it depends how you think about how you think about children, how you think about parenting. I mean, Woody Guthrie, and you know, again, this is, a lot of this, this stuff is published. But he wrote, you know, he he read a lot about progressive parenting. He wrote about progressive parenting, and you know, and some of that uh, appears in his liner notes for his children's albums. And so, you know, he's fairly, you know, he's very broad-minded in 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 that sense. You know, he's he's quite happy to. Uh, uh, you know, he takes a very child-centered approach, I suppose. That's 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 kind of um, characteristic of of, of um, sort of progressive educators like um, Montessori and uh, Rudolf Steiner and people that, that are involved in music education. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, you know, he's quite happy to lay it all out there in his. Uh, in his children's songs, I mean, there's a song about nuclear, nucle- you know, <laughs> extolling the uh, the virtues of nuclear energy, and uh, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff, you know. It's kind of religious, spiritual, certainly political, but not not always overtly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's pivot. We could do a, a hard pivot to yes on this on this because now you, as a children's entertainer, a children's mm. musician, you have yeah. this 
academic perspective, yeah. then do you turn that lens on your own material? Well, and and then yeah. we're gonna we're gonna work from here then into venues and and okay. and and work that. But then how do you as a songwriter square mm. all of this academic research that you've done and the observations mm. that you have with the music that you write? Mm. Yeah, no, that's it's interesting. And obviously, um, like you and the Love Boat, you know, I increasingly reflect on on what I've done in the past. I've been writing music for children for about eleven years as a songwriter, and it sort of precedes my academic study. The enlightening part for me was was the fifth chapter where I interviewed lots and lots of children songwriters, and I really sort of grilled them about what worked for them musically, you know, because I've, I've got a musical background, I suppose. Uh, you know, as we... Sorry, I'm preaching to the converted here, but, um, you know, so talking musical terms about what they did, uh, especially through performance, and, uh, you know, it just came back to the same things that... You know, number one, that the songs on their not all the songs on their albums was were worked really well live. So the ones that work well live have some sort of engagement with children, music, some musical engagement, or some, uh, you know, usually some usually something like call and response or sections in the song where children could uh, have some sort of input or it's kind of uh, instructional where you're like telling the children to do actions. And so I've become very aware of that, I suppose. But then, uh, again, kind of back to this idea, the differences in culture. Um, I found a lot of the American songwriters were much more willing to um, engage with social issues, I suppose. In, in a way, <laughs> it's back to our British sensibility and our musical tongue-in-cheek and our nudge-nudge-wink-wink. Wink. But a lot of, um, you know, in my experience, and you know, I'm certainly guilty of this. That I would use a lot of humour, and you know, maybe even just try and uh, sneak some some adult content, or like you say, some in jokes under the radar. But I've I've just really tried to train myself to be much more uh, unabashed and unashamedly, um, you know, using positivity and optimism and hope, and write songs that are just. Um, you know, have this kind of positive, hopeful, hopeful vibe, um, rather than using, you know, hu- humor, I suppose, and uh, and other devices. You're consciously writing more about hope and that sort of thing. And just as a as a quick tangent, um, I think that the political environment in the United States over the past three years since the election has yes. definitely motivated. I've seen this, and I'm part of this group too. Yeah. To to motive, it's motivated um, a lot of the song children's performers and songwriters in the states. Yes, to take it upon themselves to say we have to step up and we have to, we can't not say yeah. something about racism, equality, mm-hmm. the building of mm-hmm. the walls, all of this yeah. stuff. We have to start to be more inclusive. And there's been uh, yeah. benef- benefit yeah. albums where people get together and write songs just for the very purpose of taking care of children in cages because it's it's part of our yeah. national conversation and most children's musicians yeah. are 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 trying to do their part is that what mm-hmm. you were talking about sort of about the um politicizing of, yeah. of music more yeah. directly yeah it really came across i mean there was some specific performers that i spoke with and i'll i'll, I'll name them and uh, i guess most explicitly were the alphabet rockers and they were so explicit in addressing uh political social issues that you've you, that you've described there 
and you know it was just so so refreshing to 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 hear that there's you know as far as i'm aware no certainly no equivalent of that in in the uk i spoke to jazzy ash who uh, uh she has a, a second line jazz jazz group that she tours all around all around the states um uh and both jazzy ash and the alphabet rockers not only talked about the content of their their songs but the idea that as uh, black performers performing in certain states, and and Jazzy Ash, I think she had a mixed mixed race band performing in certain uh, areas, especially the South, uh, and I guess especially the Deep South. Um, just their appearance, their physical appearance on stage, was a political act in itself. And both of them talked about the kind of pushback that they'd got some comments that they get uh, you know because of that i spoke to um uno dos tres andres mm-hmm. and you know he talked about similar things obviously he's he's, he's colombian uh, lives in new york but writes uh, in in spanish language so it's this kind of politics of identity i guess uh, i spoke a little bit with the Okidoki Brothers. Well, I spoke quite a lot with the Okidoki Brothers, but uh, you know, the music's not ex- explicitly political. But again, there was some some issues which they they talked about around the ideas of identity. And uh, so I guess you know, and it certainly made me made me think. You know, made me feel a little bit guilty that I my uh, when I've written about issue, you know, issues I've written about them in a certain way, although. You know, I've certainly addressed issues about, uh, you know, like endangered animals and uh, things like this. Um, but then when it becomes more explicitly political, I suppose, um, who, 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 who am I or who are, we, who are we communicating to? And I guess my revelation was that I'm potentially not communicating these things to very young children um, and it's interesting because I work in schools one of the big projects that I do uh, I'm an associate artist for an organization that does Shakespeare in schools uh, so each year we do a different Shakespeare play and I teach that down use, using music down to four-year-olds four or five-year-olds up to uh, 12-year-olds and so this year I'm gearing up to deliver The Merchant of Venice which has a main theme of anti-Semitism, uh, revenge, some quite quite difficult themes. Last year we did uh, Romeo and Juliet, double suicide, uh, other very some difficult themes. So, uh, um, you know, part of my task is to write songs for these four-year-olds and five-year-olds to sing. So I have to paint with fairly broad brushstrokes or be very selective about which themes or which scenes that I'm, that I'm kind of depicting in my songs I suppose well, can, I, um, can I ask a yeah. question why why would you choose that content for four year olds I mean, oh, I don't con- choose it I'm, that, that's I mean, my job t- that's what t- I have to t- do you're tasked to do it but somewhere yeah. somebody is saying hey you yeah, know what no, would be a good idea let's take Romeo and Juliet for four year olds and yeah, no, yeah it's on the curriculum so they have to you know it's part of their school uh, their school is part of a, a larger network of schools that kind of buys into this scheme where uh, they all do the same play and it culminates in a big uh, performance by the older children generally um, in a big theatre, so I, I often you know, I, I write the songs for the performance, including the incidental music. But 
Um, you know, what I've found is that, you know, and I guess we've, I've kind of touched on this already, is that um, I think children can un- can understand uh, fairly, fairly um, you know, deep and profound issues. They understand it in their own way. Um, and obviously, I, you know, I, I'm quite aware that I wouldn't expose four and five-year-olds to, to some of the blood and guts and the, the more difficult issues that they just, you know, that would be inappropriate for me to do. But, um, you know, say Romeo and Juliet, I go into school with, I don't know, seven, eight-year-olds and I just check in with them. I say, well, what do you know about Romeo and Juliet? Because usually they've already been studying it with a drama coach or in the literature, uh, you know, the English lessons or whatever. And, they, you know, the first thing they say to me, well, they both die at the end. I say, okay, cool. You know, now we know where we are. I can move on from there sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I, I, I get, you know, I guess, you know, part of my my thinking through through study and through speaking to other songwriters is that, uh, you know, I've kind of broadened my, my, my palette, my subject matter. I'm, I'm not scared to present children with with uh, more more difficult subject matter but i you know with all of us our skill as songwriters is to to pitch that in a way that is uh not only appropriate however you want to define that but pa- palatable acceptable singable listenable that can work well in a live context as well as on recording or or or, or one or the other you know it's a it's a very difficult balancing act and you know again I, you know, I'll admit this, and and again, uh, other songwriters have expressed this. But we don't get it. We don't hit that sweet spot every time. You know, we can look back on our on our uh, catalogue of songs and think, oh, I didn't quite get it right that time. It was didn't work. And again, sometimes they might be the songs that, that I've got all the hits and uh, and the views. But uh, you know, it's a very unpredictable kind of. Um, you know, once you put your art and your work out there into the big wide world, it's an unpredictable. You've, you know, you leave it to the to the market and the the audience to decide what works for them. I guess. Yeah, and I didn't mean to challenge. Uh, I meant no offense by by questioning about who would choose that content for four year olds because it's great literature. It's um, specifically, yeah. and I'm only going to assume it's a different historical narrative being over there than over here we have our own legends and and um trying to think of a a way to say this shakespeare to you is different than shakespeare to us and so for me to look at that it's like it isn't it doesn't have the same uh cultural relevance because it's Hmm. you know that's something that gets introduced in high schools and later you know 12 you know 11th 10th 11th 12th grade that's when you can get into that that's when they study it in drama yeah Yeah, Um, yeah. we sort of hold off we introduce completely different types of content about Daniel Boone and and the Alamo and things like that over here, which are incredibly violent and incredibly challenging. Mm. And we're rewriting those narratives of Mm. playing cowboys and Indians to Mm. bring them up to speed over here. So I was casting no aspersions about that. It was striking to me, though, as a songwriter, if someone said, hey, go ahead and write a... um, you know, a three-minute song, a sing-along call-and-response song about Romeo and Juliet for four-year-olds, I'd be mm. like, oh, man, that's, yeah. wow, okay, uh, Tybalt, uh, Tybalt, you know, I don't know, we have to figure out maybe some of the relationship bits about family and friends, and that, yeah, yeah, you know, it would be yeah, a challenge it's... anyway, that's why it was a little bit, uh, it was a little uh, um, challenging for me, or shocking maybe, just to be like, 
man, uh, how do you even do that? How do you even start to approach that? And didn't you, yeah. <laughs> I would want to like turn to some administrator and be like, uh, can we pick a different topic besides you know, <laughs> 12, well, 13, yeah. 14 year olds falling in love and running away from their families and killing themselves in the end and to, 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 to work on? <laughs> I'll, I'll just say that even, um, I mean, Shakespeare covers what, what I would call universal issues, life and death kind of love and hope and regret and forgiveness kind of issues and i'm just trying to think you know this this certain you know american texts like where the wild things are is often morris sendak is often held up as a good um example i suppose of where you know the child gets to work through anger and kind of frustration and violence and and i mean even in dr zeus there's some pretty you know profound kind of stuff going on there for oh, children i suppose but yeah so. absolutely and in our Roald Dahl books over here, you know, yeah, all sorts of issues around uh, sexuality and, uh, you know, adult-child relations and all sorts of stuff going on in those those texts that are often aimed at younger children, if not in the original text, but in the kind of adaptations in films and uh, animations, I suppose. Oh, totally. And that's, you know, and that's Main Street children's entertainment over here. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the... the Dr. Seuss movies, uh, or the Cat in the Hat movie, you know, all of those, there, yeah. there's, there's clearly adult content that's been put in there very specifically. That's, mm. it's like, hmm, that's probably not appropriate, or well, <laughs> we at least have to talk about it now at, in context, which, yeah. you know. So how do yeah. you, so after you move, for, uh, so you, now you're at this period, this point of, of, yeah. I don't want to say enlightenment, but of understanding about yeah. how about the the historical contents context of children's music as an active songwriter. Then you pivot to performing, yes. and you were saying that you you try and bring a lot more optimism and joy and hope to your music your music now consciously. Does that translate well into the uh, the live performances that you offer? I think so. I mean, I still sort of present present a mix of uh you know humorous stuff completely inexplicably bonkers songs about fruits and vegetables and you know there's a whole range of stuff I th you know i think children need to uh, you know if they come if they come to the show they need to be uh, entertained and they need to be involved i guess and, and and i think you can just bring them along with some of that content as long as it as long as it ticks other boxes if you understand all the as long as it entertains them and engages them especially at a live show then you can get away with quite a lot you know you can bring in the messages you can bring in the you know the the, the positive pro-social messages that that you kind of want them to to hear i suppose but then you know i want them to have a good time i suppose if people have paid that that money especially to come and see me and my band then uh, you know i want them to to be entertained to go away and, and want to come back and tell their friends to come back as well but uh, yeah i think the you know the the positive messages are, are kind of what would set me apart certainly from what i used to do in the past from you know quite a lot of other things that i see around i suppose it's not I, I think it's a very difficult um balance to strike sometimes and i think i can see a lot of people on youtube you know for, and again it's purely subjective but i think some people uh get it you know fall the wrong side of that you know the the, the messages become 
awkward and didactic or they just then just not ticking the the other boxes you know the the kind of listenable singable entertaining boxes I mm. suppose. But, uh, you think they yeah. go too far to make statement and then the content of entertainment yeah. is lost yeah i think so and i think that at that point you're communicating much more to adults rather than children right. and you know the songs become exclusive rather than inclusive i know uh, as you mentioned the alphabet rockers their live performances are all about that all about the inclusion of the message yeah. of empowerment and that's yeah, yeah. you know they've that's the the mark the niche that they've carved for yeah. themselves specifically yeah. and yeah so very brave, if you, you if know you, oh very but and 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 necessary and there's plenty of room at the table for everybody who wants to yeah, participate um, yeah for, my perception is that the the children's music industry if you want to call it that the circuits the networks are much more better developed in the States and in Canada and potentially in Australia than in the UK. Uh, we do have festivals that are specifically um, for children and, and families, and a lot of those have only uh, developed over the last, say, four or five years. The more mainstream festivals have started to do um, areas and stages for families, which is refreshing. But we just, um, and uh, there are small networks of theatres and uh, what's called rural touring. So um, for people that live out, outside cities and towns, um, performers can go and perform in uh, village halls and community centres and, and other uh, non-traditional venues, I suppose. But these things are not very well developed here in in the UK, and um, we we rely on you know I I, I perform uh, I I book my own venues I suppose um, I know a handful of other children's performers in this country. A lot of the music that's made for children, a lot of the performers that I perform with at festivals are associated with the BBC. We have two specific channels tv channels for children called cbb's and cbbc and all those characters that front those shows um are pretty high profile over here they're I, you know i guess the nearest equivalent would be they're they're kind of like disney presenters or something like that they oh, have their okay. own shows and their own brands but they all have a music show usually with them performing to recorded backing music uh some of the music that's from their own shows, but obviously some they will just dive into the children's music canon and do the wheels on the bus and Dingle Dangle Scarecrow and Five Little Men in a Flying Saucer and you know these songs that uh, that are pretty well worn, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you know, I just I just get a sense that um, uh, you know in this country it's you know uh, maybe more corporate in that way because it's uh, such strong links with the bbc oh. um and uh, and um yeah i mean i performed in the states like when i was in oklahoma uh, i was asked to perform some of woody guthrie's children's songs in a in a bookshop actually and uh, it was really interesting it was the sh show was booked and marketed you know very very quickly um and people came from all over people traveled a long way you know from Woody Guthrie's birth town, even which is Okima, which is about maybe seventy kilometers south of Tulsa, and people came from all over, 
And, you know, this is a, another difference that never happens in this country that, you know, we just pass the hat and people put money in the hat. And that very, very rarely happens in this country. People buy tickets or we play for nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and people are really, really appreciative. And, uh, you know, you know, they're so appreciative. And they actually put their money, put their hands in their pockets <laughs> and actually paid. And, you know, this is this is out, outside of our cultural understanding in this country. We, um, we just don't the 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 performance circuit certainly not the, the the children's music performance circuit just does not work in that way over here. That's really curious uh, that sort of a difference because uh, when you say it's corporate over there because it's through the BBC yeah whereas over yeah. here it's all so independent and, and venue based yeah you know, it's like oh right. well there's this place that will book you and there's that place but then that creates yeah. the whole culture of well get a booking agent get a publicist yeah get a you know I'm, I don't think yep. many people have managers over here anymore just because there no. isn't. Uh, you're under the size of like the Wiggles or something like that, where you're going to need yeah. that yeah. that uh, yeah. extra layer of management. Uh, no. But it's all mostly independent over here, and we kind of long for some sort of a corporate okay. <laughs> intervention. <laughs> you know, Amazon yeah. Amazon's producing a few children's albums that they can right. then you know they put out through their their own channel. So that's the closest thing we have to a label yeah. at this yeah. point over here left. You know, you talk about the the kind of independence scene. I'm very well kind of connected to the Children's Music Network, which is um, mostly folk based, but not entirely. Um, and you know, the very in, um, I spoke with Kathy O'Connor, who who runs Kindy Kindycom, Kindycom, yep. Uh, which is you know, as she described, it, a very kind of loose, informal gathering, a kind of almost songs, you know, with opportunities to swap songs. But then in contrast with that, I guess you do have Disney and, you know, the, like you've just mentioned Amazon there, in, in the same way that in this country we have uh, the BBC and one of the more high-profile children's music artists over here is called Nick Cope. And he's he's been, uh, he was in an alternative guitar band called the Candy Skins in the sort of 80s, has dedicated himself to writing music for children and creating really nice animated videos that go with it. But he's been picked up uh, by the BBC. To, he's been commissioned by the BBC to write some stuff for them, for their children's channel. Um, and I know other, you know, I know, I know other performers that, that, you know, you work as a self-employed uh, uh, commissioned artist with larger uh, corporations or companies, I guess. Yeah. Do you think that uh, most any of the children's performers who are over here, if we were invited to play a festival over there, do you think our music would resonate as well? Do you think, um, would we have to worry about bringing our acts over there or would you just be like, no, nah, come on over, you'd be fine? Yeah, I mean, the, the, act, the acts work. You know, in a way, a lot of these festivals... Um, especially the folky ones, they they want the kind of Americana. They they want the kind of <laughs> the American slant on it. They want all that. Uh, you know, they don't want it. You know, they don't want any corporate kind of um, angle on it. I suppose. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, I guess the same with me. <laughs> me going out to the states, people are fascinated by I don't know the accent and the. Uh, I don't know. They think I'm Monty, Monty Python or something. <laughs> Are you more Monty Python or Faulty Towers? Which way do you oh, personally yeah. go? Well, yeah, I don't know. Probably, <laughs> but I, I can swing both ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Dr. Liam, thank you so much for coming on Barn Banter. And even though in my mind as the interviewer, I had this one thing that I was like, oh, we should talk about this because my perception living here, you know, I'm in Montana, I'm up in the mountains. Seattle is 500 miles away and that's the nearest hotspot for children's music. So I'm I'm isolated. And so that idea for me of isolation is like, well, it must be even more different somewhere else. Like in England, the whole scene must be different. But the commonalities that we've discussed that you uh, that we examined and that you provided, it seems like no, it's kind of it's pretty much the same. I mean, we're we're yeah. homogenized as far as the approach goes. But yeah. what I was super excited about was this other conversation that I wasn't expecting about the history of children's music and you sharing your academic knowledge. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. So, Liam, tell me, what is the name of your book? Okay, so the book is called, well, the short version is Spinning the Child. Spinning um, so the Child? Spin, spinning okay. the Child. So spinning in terms of records and things spinning, but also this idea of... Um, uh, what should we say? Manipulating through, you know, this idea of constructing childhood through, through music. But uh, the longer title is "Spinning the Child: Colon uh, How Recorded Music Constructs Child How How Recorded Music for Children Constructs Childhood." Um, so it's it's published by uh, Routledge, and it'll be out early next year. But it is an academic book. They've just sent me all the. The prices, uh, they're going to pu- uh, print some hardbacks and some ebooks to start with, but the hardbacks are something like £130 uh, each. Ooh. So it's very, aimed very much at university libraries. Um, and then there'll be some paperbacks that come out in 18 months' time. But, you know, if you look at the price of academic books, it's, it's prohibitive uh, for most people to buy these things. And uh, But uh, if you have access to a college or a university library uh, online catalog, then uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. And uh, I've, pub- I've I say I've published lots of other articles about different aspects of children's music, uh, about even methodology about how to analyze it. Um, and I've just published one about uh, spe- very specifically about um, jazz music uh, in children's t- television. Mm. And I was at a conference in Birmingham a couple of weeks ago presenting that. I've presented a lot about the music of The Muppet Show and Sesame Street and different uh, uh, UK uh, TV shows as well. But a lot of that you can access online. Just type in my name, Liam Malloy, and see what comes up. Well, Johnny Raindrop, thank you again for coming on The Barn, and I hope we stay in touch. I'm going to spin one of your tunes now. Which one would you like uh, the American audience to hear? Do you have a favorite that uh, you think that they should probably be cued into? Well, that's a tough call. Uh, there's a song called Lend a Friend a Hand, which is quite good. It's it's about caring and sharing, and uh, that, might be worth, that might be worth listening to. Oh, you got it. We can totally do that. You've got to lend a friend a hand, pick them up when they fall down. Do everything you can to help them through. Let them tell you what they need, you'll be a special friend indeed. Someday soon they're gonna do the same for you. It's always better when you share, show your friends how much you care. Do what you can to make sure they're alright Cause it's no fun when one has many And the others don't have any Keep on sharing and your future will be bright Let 
Great stuff, Andrew. Keep up the good work because it's really positive what you're doing as well. Absolutely. Thanks for reaching out anyway. It's been really good to uh, to talk to you anyway. It was really good to talk to you, Dr. Liam Malloy from Nottingham, England. Oh, wait, I almost did it. Ha! I almost dropped into the, uh, the British accent. Not the conversation that I was planning to have. I interviewed some other folks from the UK and there will be a future podcast about what they find are the similarities and differences between being here and there. Uh... Holy cats, that was a lot to go through. I'm such a huge fan of the Muppets that anytime we talk about that, I get kind of excited. And this was a perspective that I was not anticipating. And look, it's time to go! Until next time, Barn Banter! I'm kind of proud of myself for averting an international episode between children's musicians in the UK and the United States by insulting the doctor about uh, teaching four-year-olds uh, Shakespeare. Uh, I think I did quite well with that in my diplomatic relations. Let's sing a song about how we're all the same, how we all like snacks and cuddles, and we all like playing games. We all like to be hugged and loved, tucked in our beds at night, tall or small, 